Today we're going to look at um, Philippians 3, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Philippians 3. Uh, this should be on page one, or 819 in the Bridge Bibles. Uh, bridge kids are dismissed. I see how that... <laughs> I even had it written on the top there, so I see how that can happen. Uh, keep your thumb there in the Bible in Philippians 3 uh, for a couple minutes while I give you some background. Um, if you need a Bible, we have some in the back, and we can hand them out to you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, um, feel free to take one of those with you. So we know from the beginning of his letter that Paul was writing to um, believers in Philippi. We also know from the book of Acts that Paul was responsible for several people coming to faith in Christ in Philippi. And Acts chapter 16 tells the story of the Philippian jailer coming to faith. Without reading the whole section in Acts, I'm going to paraphrase that story. Um, uh, Paul and Silas were in the Roman colony of Philippi on Paul's second missionary journey. And Paul cast a demon out of a young girl there. The influence of that demon gave this young girl an ability uh, sort of like a fortune teller with this... A girl with a demon made her household uh, quite a bit of money, and without the demonic influence, she was no longer able to do her fortune teller job. Uh, The masters of this young girl started a mini riot over this, and Paul and Silas were severely beaten and ended up in jail on what I would consider or think would be like uh, disturbing the peace or inciting a riot kind of a charge. Later in verse 25 of Acts chapter 16, um, We see that around midnight while um, in jail, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. This gives us a picture of how Paul handled adversity. And let me just give you a quick picture here of what life was like in a Roman prison typically. According to a publication called Christian History, Roman imprisonment was preceded by being stripped naked and then flogged, a humiliating, painful, and bloody ordeal. The bleeding wounds went untreated as prisoners sat in painful leg and wrist irons. Mutilated, blood-stained clothing was not replaced even in the cold of winter. Most cells were dark, especially the inner cells of a prison like the one Paul and Silas inhabited in Philippi. Unbearable cold, lack of water, cramped quarters, and sickening stench from few toilets made sleeping difficult and waking hours miserable. Because of the miserable condition, many prisoners begged for a speedy death. Others simply committed suicide. In settings like this, Paul wrote encouraging, even joyful letters and continued to speak of Jesus. So I just want us to see that this was likely the setting where Paul and Silas were singing hymns and worshiping God. This was also likely the sort of setting where Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. So then Paul's in jail, he's in Philippi, and it says, um, and he's singing and worshiping God, and it says around midnight there was an earthquake, their chains fell off, the jailers were about to kill themselves rather than end up as prisoners themselves for letting their prisoners escape. When Paul shouted to um, to the jailers to stop, When the jailer, then we see the jailer and his household come to faith in Jesus with this well known question and answer from verse 30 and 31 
in Acts chapter 16, where the jailer asks Paul, what must we do to be saved? And Paul answers in verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Okay, follow Jesus. Put your hope and faith in Jesus who willingly died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, who is dead but is now alive, and who lives today and sits at the right hand of God in heaven. That would have been the expanded message that Paul gave, by the way. Um, The jailer, who clearly was influenced by Paul's confidence and faith, during during Paul's own difficult circumstances, accepted that. Accepted that, said that he believed that, and he was so excited about this, the jailer was, that he asked Paul to come to his house, and they woke everybody up, and they, they said, we'll have a meal, and you'll tell my family about Jesus. And so that night, the jailer and his household, his wife and kids, his mother-in-law, probably Uncle Antonius, everybody heard about Jesus and came to faith in him. And right away, they were baptized in response to their faith that often often happened in the New Testament. So we see how Paul was able to model this confident faith to a new church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, and it is quite possible that the recipients of this letter to the Philippian church could have included the Philippian jailer and his family, among other believers. It is also likely that the believers in Philippi were regularly facing persecution under Roman rule, attacks on their belief from other religious sects, and other commonly challenges that cause suffering. And Paul is writing this letter to remind them of the reason that they should not live in fear, pity, or desperation. The reason that Paul did not live in fear was because he had great confidence. In order to give us a picture of what great confidence looks like, let's meet a remarkable young man named Timothy. Here's a quick video introduction to Timothy Richmond. From an early age, Timothy Richmond understood that with knowledge comes confidence. As a toddler, he understood that riding a bike is basically balanced momentum and no center of gravity. Got it. In junior high, while abroad, he explained how jellyfish stings can be neutralized with vinegar in perfect Italian. On safari as a teenager, he used his knowledge of veterinary obstetrics. You know, it's tough on the breach like this, oh, particularly the Bengals. As an adult, Timothy's knowledge of storm cells and tornadoes saved the Newbury Prep cheerleading squad when he explained they'd be safe in a low-lying depression. They went on to win the state championship. But when it came time to buy a new car, he was just as nervous as the rest of us. So Timothy Richmond got his knowledge at cars.com, regained his confidence, and got the perfect car at the perfect price. So we see Timothy Richmond also had an abundance of confidence. Timothy's confidence came from his great knowledge. He had confidence in his skills and abilities. And even when his exceptional capabilities failed him, he was still able to find confidence to overcome his fear of car buying with the help of a website. In our passage today, we'll see some personal traits that Paul had confidence in, some that failed him, and one thing that helped him overcome his fear and regain his confidence 
once and for all, and that's his belief in Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes in our passage today in Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write this same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has, com- or he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. So in this section of scripture, we see in verse 1 of chapter 3 that Paul tells his readers to rejoice in the Lord because Paul's confidence was in Jesus. Which brings us to our first point, our confidence needs to be in Jesus who is our master. Let me reread. Um, 3 1 again. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. The first half, anyway. Whether your translation uses the word finally or further at the beginning of the verse, uh, this verse, I believe Paul is simply attempting to signify that he is changing direction in his letter. Not because it's actually his final point. I think he's saying, above all else, or always remember this when he uses the word finally here. So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's his always remember this. Rejoice in the Lord. And then in the second half of verse 1, he says, it's no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. In other words, I think he's saying, I know you've heard me say this a thousand times, and just so you know, I don't mind repeating myself on this one because it's important. So why does Paul think this is such a universal principle with such significant implications? Um, Let's start by looking further into this phrase, rejoice in the Lord. The word rejoice is a verb which makes it an action or something that we can do, perhaps in response to a given situation. It means to celebrate, delight, exalt, and cheer. But what makes this action of rejoicing so effective is the object of the verb, which is the Lord. As we, as Christians, can choose to rejoice in the Lord. And we know that rejoicing in the Lord is an appropriate response to any situation because Paul writes it over 
and over in his prescribed response to numerous different circumstances. We see in the book of Philippians alone six times where he references rejoicing in the Lord. So the reason we can rejoice in the midst of any situation, even difficulties, is because our confidence is in Jesus who is our Lord. So Paul is teaching a universal principle here about the believer's ability to choose how to respond to any situation by rejoicing in the Lord. Over and over, Paul chose not to dwell on his present suffering, but instead he would focus on his present access to and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as his future hope of an eternity with Jesus. This made a practical difference in Paul's ability to overcome adversity And as we saw earlier in the story of the Philippian jailer, Paul's attitude in the midst of adversity was attractive to those who didn't know Jesus. Question, how do you handle adversity? Do you focus on the unfairness of it all like I sometimes do? Or can you choose to rejoice in the Lord like Paul's example? Next, Paul turns sharply to a warning and seeks to use his past life as an example. Which brings us to our second point. Our confidence is in Jesus, not religion. Picking up at verse 2. Paul says, Watch out for those dogs, those evil men, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Paul is addressing an either current or potential problem for the church in Philippi. There were those in the church who believed that in order to become a follower of Christ, one must begin by following the Jewish laws and traditions, specifically in this case, they were telling people that they had to be circumcised to become Christian. Paul strongly disagrees by calling such teachers mutilators of the flesh. This kind of thing is so upsetting to Paul because, as your outline indicates, false religious beliefs create barriers to the gospel. This kind of thing still happens today, but rather than to get into a list of modern-day false beliefs that create barriers to the gospel, let me just say this. We as a church are responsible to be clear about the gospel. Not only do we need to be clear about the gospel for ourselves, but especially if we are believers, we need to be clear about the gospel for the sake of others. So number one, let's make sure we're clear about the gospel and make sure we understand it, that we know and share it clearly. And number two, we can make sure we represent the gospel in a way that does not create confusion for those who do not know the gospel. Even well-intentioned Christians can get careless and sloppy about their speech and not represent the gospel well. In addition, false beliefs about the gospel can be the result of Christians making comments about unrelated moral and political issues. So when we go out in public and share our opinions about A, B, and C, 
There can be a misconception that one has to believe like we do about A, B, and C in order to become a Christian. I'm not saying that we can't have opinions on moral and political issues, only that we are aware that words we type, text, post, message, tweet, retweet, blog, or share can be interpreted as what Christians believe and can be confused with the gospel by unbelievers. I think this is where many false beliefs that create barriers to the gospel come from today. I think the internet meme, in some cases, carries the modern-day false beliefs about Christianity and the gospel. And I wouldn't want to be a part of spreading those types of false beliefs. The application here simply is be careful about our words and messages, not only person-to-person, but on social media. Think about what we say online, how what we say online or otherwise might not represent the gospel well. Next, we'll talking about we'll talk about <clears throat> putting hope in religion. Second half of verse four, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul is laying out his case for having a right to speak on the issue of circumcision and the false teachings about the gospel message. I didn't mention this from verse 3, but Paul believes that circumcision in Jesus Christ is not a physical circumcision, but a condition of the heart where the believer willingly gives up control of his life or her life to the lordship of Jesus. But Paul is also opening up about the standards from his past that he used to believe were qualifications for his righteousness. Things that he thought would allow him to someday stand before God and be judged as righteous. He's telling the reader that in his old way of thinking... He believed that each one of these qualifications earned him a certain amount of credit towards the ultimate reward of eternal salvation and righteousness. He claimed credit for his heredity, being born in the bloodline of Abraham and to the tribe of Benjamin. And he would want a credit for his conviction or his ability to know and follow religious laws and traditions. That is the kind of person Paul is telling the reader that he used to be. Question. Do you or someone you know think that they're getting righteousness credits from God because of where they were born or what family they are in or because they're a good person? If so, you probably want to hear what Paul has to say next. And that's our third uh, sub-point here. Loss versus gain. Picking up in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. 
Paul considered all of those things a loss in contrast to what he was able to gain through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Think about that. If we apply this principle today, Paul is saying you can be born to a wonderful family, be sent to the best schools, have a wonderful career, have a great reputation in the community, but in contrast to knowing Christ personally, all that stuff is worthless. In fact, it's more than worthless. Paul says he considers those things a loss, meaning if a person's confidence comes from those things, they take away from the relationship that God has designed for us to have with him. So again, we cannot think that any righteousness or personal efforts that keep us from sin have any lasting value apart from our belief that Jesus died to pay the penalty for those sins. And finally today, our third main point, uh, our confidence in Jesus is bolstered by a growing faith. Verse 10 says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul knew Christ. He knew who he was. He knew about him. He met him. He wants to know him more, experience him more. Paul also knew the power of Christ that enabled Jesus to be raised from the dead. He references his, this power. That power, which is available to all believers through the Holy Spirit, is what Paul is longing to continue experiencing through the rest of his life. The word that Paul uses here that is translated to know means not just to know about Christ, but to know by experiencing Christ's work in his life. It is often through experiences in our lives that our faith grows and we are better able to have the confidence that allows us to know Christ as our master and like Paul, rejoice in the face of suffering and adversity. If like Paul, you already believe that Jesus is, in, is your Lord and can seek to know him more through experiencing him through experiencing every day by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can continue to know him by experiencing the Lord every day through the power of his Holy Spirit. If you don't yet know who Jesus is and what you need to do to know him and to experience that um, confidence, let me just go through real quick what it takes to know him and have that confidence. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin separates us from God and keeps us from relationship with him. This sin is a problem that separates us from God. 
Um, the problem is, is that, as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is, God, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What we've earned um, as a wage would indicate is um, this separation from God for all of eternity in, in what Jesus called hell. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we know that there was nothing that we could do to gain those credits I talked about earlier, those righteousness credits. And so Christ died for our sins, paid the penalty for those sins and his death on the cross. And because he was God, he was able to be raised again on the third day. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This gives us our response. It tells us that God loves us, that we don't have to be separated from him, that if we believe in him, we can be with him in eternity. In Acts 16.31, just like Paul told the Philippian jailer, I can tell you today that what must you do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. So right now, I just want to give us an opportunity. If anybody has never heard or understood that message, I want, to, I want to give a quick prayer that you can say if you'd like. I'm going to say it once, and then... You, if you agree with it, you can bow your head and say it to yourself, and then I'll say it the second time, and you can join me. The first time, it's going to go like this. Dear Lord, I understand that I'm a, a sinner. I've, um, I, I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand that your son died for me. I understand that you, your son's death paid the penalty for for my sins. And I accept that and I believe in Jesus Christ. And I ask him to come into my life and I uh, want to make him Lord of my life today. So if you accept that or if you agree with that, you can pray that with me right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, I ask that you... um, be with us as we seek to know you now, Lord. I, um, I know that I'm a sinner, Lord. I know that I have something missing in my life that is a need for you. I ask that, uh, I know that you died, your son died for my sins. I know that you um, have a desire to have a relationship with me. I accept this is truth. I believe this, Lord, and I ask that you be with me and allow me to come into that relationship with you. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, would you come see me? And um, as we finish up and close today, um, I just want to thank you all for coming. I want to um, give one final prayer about... Um, in closing today, actually. And 
I'll do that now. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to come together. I thank you for those who have prepared this time. I thank you for everyone who's come. We thank you for this wonderful weather. We thank you that you would guide us through um, this life. We thank you that we can have confidence in you as we learn and grow and know you more. And we just give you praise and honor and all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we close our service in some more worship.